on April 4, 1865, General Robert E. Lee crossed the Appomattox. He was fleeing from Richmond, which had fallen to the north. He and his men were making way for Amelia, where they believed that boxcars on the railway from Danville were filled with rations that would help sustain their war efforts. A few hours later, after the crossing of the river happened around 7.30 a.m., they arrived in the scenic landscape of Virginia, not too far from here, and they saw that the rail cars had arrived. General Lee ordered the rail cars be opened so that they could begin to enjoy the provisions. Yet this is what they found inside of those boxcars. 96 caissons, 200 crates of ammunition, 164 artillery harnesses, and other various forms of ammunition. But no bread... No beef, no milk, no coffee, no flour, no ham, no fruit, no pork, no tea, no sugar, no food. The truth matters. And truth always corresponds to reality. It's true. And it didn't matter how sincerely General Lee and his men believed that there were there was food in the rail cars, it was not there. Because the fact of the matter was there was some kind of administrative mix-up. And they had been sent guns and ammunition rather than rations. But truth matters. This is no different with spiritual things. It's no different with religion. And Christianity makes a rather large and stunning claim. Christianity claims to be the only true religion. It claims that Jesus Christ is the only one that can make us right with God. It claims that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. And it is either true or it is false. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is arguing that Christianity is absolutely and entirely true. He's reminding the Corinthians who have begun to believe in death more than they believe in life that the resurrection is one of the two pillars of Christianity. He's saying any Christianity that is void of the substitutionary death of Christ and the justifying resurrection of Christ is not Christianity at all. He's saying any Christianity that is emptied of the blood of Jesus, any Christianity that leaves the body of Jesus buried somewhere in the Middle East decomposing is worthless. And those who believe a defunct Christianity such as that ought to be pitied. An untrue message is not worth believing. It's the truth of the message that gives it value. It's kind of the main idea today. What I want to impress upon you is that the truth of the message matters. And then I want to give you a very simple exhortation to believe the truth. To believe it. And the path that we'll walk uh, through this morning, through the text, 
as we're going to talk about the reality of the resurrection in the first 11 verses, the necessity of the resurrection, and the guarantee of resurrection. And before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Speak to us this morning, God, by your Holy Spirit. Let your word fall upon our hearts as a hammer falls upon stone. That any hardness towards your word or towards your gospel might be broken away. Father, help us to not resist your truth but to welcome it. God, we acknowledge that apart from the miracle of your spirit, we cannot hear your voice. We are as as dead men and women. So we ask that you would make us alive this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beautiful truth the gospel, that there is a way for us to take hold of everlasting life, everlasting happiness, and his name is Jesus. Speak to us now. This we pray in his name. Amen. So let's look at those first 11 verses again, starting with verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you've believed in vain. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. Paul's point in these first 11 verses is to say the resurrection of Christ really happened. It's verifiable. He outlines for us a early Christian creed in verses 3 and 4. That is the message which is of most importance, that Christ died for our sins. And then verse 4, that he was buried and raised on the third day. 
And then he gives us eyewitness testimony to confirm this Christian creed, this Christian truth. And he outlines for us, as we looked at last week, various messengers of the gospel, starting with Peter and then going on to the 12 and the 500 nameless brothers and sisters. And if you remember last week, we said that the messengers tell us something about the message, right? That the medium is the message. And we learned that this beautiful truth of the gospel is for screw-ups like Peter that's who Cephas is, if you weren't with us. It is for the cowardly among us, as the twelve hid away after the resurrection to try to preserve their own lives. It is for the unfamous and the poor and the weak, the nameless 500 plus. It's for people that might be really skeptical. James once thought Jesus was crazy and sought to get him in a, a straitjacket. The gospel is for anyone who will believe, even somebody like Paul who used to persecute the church. This message is for anyone who will believe in Christ as the substitute who died for their sins and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. This message brings life. says, whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. And you, you've believed this because people have preached this message to you, and because it, it's historically true, right? It's not just a story someone told you, it's something that can be investigated and, and verified, right? Paul, Paul is saying, if you want to know the truth about these things, go and talk to somebody, Right? Jesus has appeared to over 500, and most of them are still alive. If you doubt the claims of the resurrection, go and ask. Many have seen the resurrected Jesus. It, it was relationally verifiable for the Corinthians, and it is historically verifiable for us. When Christians claim that Jesus rose from the dead, we are making what is primarily a historical claim. That Jesus, in time, in space, in reality, was dead and in a grave, and then bodily got up out of the grave and is alive. And it's historically verifiable in, in a great number of ways, and, and I just want to offer a few of those ways to you this morning. Um, and, and I'll primarily use uh, the New Testament, I'm just going to use a couple. Uh, but even if you reject the Bible as God's authoritative word, these are still really, really good historical documents. And so the testimony that they share has really good value. And one of the things we notice in the accounts of the resurrection, one of the first things that helps us realize this is a true account of what happened, is that the people who discover Jesus' empty tomb or that he's resurrected are women. And some of you are going, so? Who cares that it was a bunch of girls that found the empty tomb? And it might not matter in the contemporary sense, but in the first century it mattered because women were not considered credible witnesses. They were thought to, to make things up. That their, their testimony wasn't valued. In fact, uh, there is a early first century scholar named Celsus, who was not a Christian, who wrote, we all know that women are hysterical and so these accounts can't be believed. And women discovering the tomb of Christ, if you were trying to concoct a false religion, is not something you would have in your foundational documents. You would want people to believe it. 
women discover the tomb and what worked against Christianity's authenticity then works for us understanding its authenticity now. Nor would you have your religious leaders and the most famous people among Jesus' disciples screwing up so much. We talked a little bit about that last week, but we have other screw-ups, right? There there are so many mess-ups among Jesus' followers that it really is, if you're trying to make up a religion, you're not going to have these people looking as foolish as they do. Additionally, the resurrection wasn't something that anyone was waiting for. It wasn't something anyone expected. It was a surprise. The the Greeks thought that once you died, the soul escaped the body, and and there was no sense of a bodily resurrection. And the Jews, some of them, believed in a general resurrection of everyone, but there was not a thought of an individual resurrection from the dead. And so this idea that Jesus would individually rise from the dead was as foreign to them as it is to us. The original audience was no more predisposed to believing in the resurrection than you and I are. And we get this in in the account of Jesus' followers who who doubt initially. Turn with me to uh, John chapter 20. It's a good sound, the turning of pages. Even though now some people are, you know, like on your phone, the tapping isn't as pleasant. I'll assume you're looking and not texting, though. John chapter 20. Mary's discovered the tomb. And we read in verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stopped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? And she says, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Notice there are two angels there, and she's still like, I have no idea where Jesus is. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? Supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Mary thinks that Jesus is dead. She is not expecting him to be up from the grave. She's talking to him, but she still can't see that it's him because the resurrection is so foreign to her. Tell me where you put him. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus says her name and all at once, the clouds of confusion disperse and she is able to see the light of the person of Christ. He says to her, Mary. And all at once it dawns on her, he is up from the dead. He's alive. I just, I just love the, the one word exchanges there. It's just Mary. And immediately, Rabbanai. Like they, they understand all at once. This isn't 
a gardener. Nobody's moved the body of Jesus. I'm, I'm talking to him. Nobody's expecting a resurrection. In the same chapter, we have the example of Thomas. Verse 24. And this is not to mention that the other disciples have been locked away in a room and kind of hiding out, and then Jesus, you know, apparates or teleports or phases through the wall into the room and tells them, hey, I'm alive, peace to you. And then they tell Thomas, and Thomas is like, yeah, right, y'all. Like, you are not hoodwinking me here. People don't get up from the dead. I'm not going to believe until I see it for myself. We see in verse 24, Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Here's the point. No one is looking for a resurrection in the first century. The disciples and Mary and all the folks that were hanging out with Jesus during his earthly ministry did not believe he was going to rise from the dead. That wasn't their expectation, even though repetitively he told them, y'all, I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. They didn't, still didn't believe it, still didn't get it. No one was expecting this. It was a wonderful surprise. This is not the kind of story you write if you are trying to make up a false religion. You have those who are founding that religion looking like really credible people who never doubted for a moment, who are really capable of teaching. But this is not some made-up story. It's the truth. It's a resurrection that, that really happened. We thought about last week how Peter's life was changed. He was someone who denied Jesus, trying to preserve his life. And then he went to being someone who was crucified upside down for professing Jesus. James, who thought Jesus was crazy during his earthly ministry, but encountered the resurrected Jesus, ended up dying for his faith, thrown from the temple. And then he didn't die and was stoned, and then somebody finally finished the job with a club. He died for Jesus. And we, we had Paul, who was persecuting Christians because this message can't be true. It's a heresy from a Jewish perspective. He, he's killing Christians, and Jesus interrupts him on the road to Damascus, and he ends up writing the majority of the New Testament. But what causes these changes? Not a fairy tale, but a true resurrection true experience of God. Still, many today find the idea of the resurrection laughable, and so they concoct uh, equally laughable explanations for what happened so many years ago. What, why is it that Christianity exploded upon the world scene? 
I'm just going to share a couple of the, the ways that this is explained. Uh, the first is that uh, in relation to 500 people seeing Jesus and others, this was just a mass hallucination, right? Everybody got together, they all hallucinated the same thing, and, you know, one thing led to another, and from there, uh, Christianity blossomed. I mean, that, that is just silly. It's, unpl- it's just not likely at all. It's more the result of what Lewis calls chronological snobbery, which just means we think because we live in this moment at this time that we're smarter than everybody else that's ever lived. Like, let's give the people that lived in the first century a little bit of credit, that they weren't so easily tricked. A mass hallucination, really? The second and by far the most popular theory for uh, how we explain the non-resurrection of Jesus is that when he was killed on the cross, he, he wasn't really dead. This theory says, despite the fact that his hands and feet were nailed to the cross and a spear was thrust through his side and a Roman centurion said, this guy's dead. Jesus wasn't really dead. That in fact, the the centurion had misdiagnosed death and and once they got him into that cool, damp place of the cave where they were burying him, a a cool breeze came and revived him. He was resuscitated. And then he evaded the Roman guards that stood outside the tomb and made it back to Galilee where his followers were and presented himself as resurrected. Mind you, that that would be a really long way for somebody that was hanging on a cross to go and had a spear through their side. It would probably be evident that, hey, this guy's looking really rough right now, not resurrected, but maybe on his last leg. I think it takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But the truth is, If we want a reason not to believe in the gospel, we will find one. And I think naturally, we do not want to believe in the gospel. We don't want to believe that Jesus got up from the dead. Because we're living our lives the way we like, and we're quite happy, thank you, doing things our way. But if Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything. It has real potential to wreck our lives. Because all of a sudden, that means, if Jesus got up, it means that everything he said was true, that he is God, and that he is worthy of our obedience. Which means that that we would have to change. That we would have to start listening to, to him rather than us. And for, for us to do that would be a great reversal of what happened in the garden. Remember way back, there's the the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he says, don't eat from this tree. And I I think the tree is more representative in this way, that God says, as long as you don't eat from this tree, and you're obedient to me in that, you prove to me that I'm your God, and that I am the one who determines what is good and evil. But when people eat from the tree, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, What was happening was a proclamation. God, you aren't going to decide what is good and evil any longer. I'll decide. And that's kind of been our position ever since. God, you're not king here. I am. And when Jesus Christ comes into your life, when you realize that he's resurrected from the dead, What that means is that your throne is getting upended and that crown is getting taken off of your head. 
and the sin inside of you screams. It's not a pleasant thing to die to yourself. But this is exactly what it costs to follow Jesus. Jesus says, I have died for you, now you die for me. The one who wants to follow me must take up his cross and follow me. And if you can't take up your cross to follow Christ, then you're not worthy of it, not worthy of his love. I think that's the real reason people don't want to believe in the resurrection. But Paul tells us in these first 11 verses, and if we examine even the corroborating historical evidence, we find that the best explanation for these events, the best explanation for Christianity, is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And as we'll see in the next few verses, Christ's resurrection is an absolute necessity to the Christian message. Look what Paul writes in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. Verse 16 repeats what he said in verse 13, lest you miss his point. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. His argument is straightforward says, if the dead aren't raised, that means Jesus isn't raised. If Jesus isn't raised, that means that we aren't raising from the dead either. And if we aren't raised from the dead either, that means that our faith is useless. It means that we've believed in vain. Lies are never worth believing. In fact, those who believe lies and live their lives built around a false message should be pitied. For example, I'm going to get the year wrong here. But 1999, 1997, there was a group called Heaven's Gate. If you remember, it was a, a tragic suicide of 39 of their members. Their, their teacher and founder thought himself to be a descendant of Jesus and said that the world was going to be wiped clean by its alien founders. And when this comet, Hale-Bopp, I think is how you pronounce it, probably not, but this comet was coming, and once it came, the, it was followed by a spaceship, and the followers of this man were to commit suicide so their souls could get to the spaceship as the world was being cleansed. 39 people in Nike gear with $5.75 in their pockets, all of them, committed suicide by uh, drinking a concoction of a deadly substance, vodka and pineapple juice, in addition to uh, some kind of, they had like an asphyxiation device around their head, a plastic bag, to make sure that they died. Now, if, if this message were true, if that message were true, then this story is one of great triumph. And they are on a spaceship somewhere. 
But if the message is false, it's a, it's a terrible lie. They gave their lives to a terrible lie. And they should be pitied. Or maybe think of the attacks on 9-11. Terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center. Why? Because they believed it would bring them eternal happiness. If they were right, well, then they're experiencing eternal happiness. I think they're wrong. And so instead, they gave their lives to a lie and brought death and destruction and pain and suffering not only to themselves, but to others. Lies are not worth believing. And those who give themselves, give their whole lives to a false message, Paul says, are to be pitied. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless you are still in your sins. That might be the most jarring portion of this section. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. This idea that, well, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, but his teachings live on in our hearts. That's how he lives on. That's not good enough. That's not saving. Because if Jesus is still dead, then we are still dead. He's still under the penalty of God's wrath. And his death was not enough to set us free from sin. It was not enough to exhaust the wrath of God against us. It was not enough to reconcile God and man. It was pointless. If Jesus didn't get up from the dead, then he was just one of many messianic pretenders who deserves to find his place among the forgotten. Why is it so important that Jesus get up from the dead? It's because this is what justifies us. The, there is no atonement without a resurrection. Jesus has to do more than just die for our sins. He has to rise again to conquer death itself. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, The dying Christ secures for us our justification, but the risen Christ will see that we get it. I had this idea come to life for me recently. I've been rereading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, which are written for like little kids. that C.S. Lewis did it, but I love it. And so I'm reading through Narnia, and if you're not familiar, I'm going to do a poor job of this, but you'll try to hang with me. Uh, what goes on is uh, there is, he's not really the main character, but he kind of is, this great lion named Aslan who creates this other world called Narnia. And he is the man, he's, well, the lion, I guess. But everybody loves him, everything's good. But at some point, a white witch gets into Narnia. And Aslan is gone somewhere else, and because of his absence in the land of Narnia, it's always winter and never Christmas. But the people of Narnia are not without hope. They all await Aslan's return to end winter and the rule of the White Witch. Now, the four main characters in the story are Peter and Lucy, Edmund. I'm going to forget the other girl's name. I can't believe it. Somebody know it? Susan, thank you. I was not going to get there on my own. 
So these four are the main characters, and they, just by chance, find their way into Narnia through the back of a wardrobe. And what they discover once they get there is that they're all to become great heroes and sit on thrones in Narnia. And everybody's kind of about them, that they're going to do something great. The twist is, is that even though they all get into Narnia through the wardrobe together, Edmund had been to Narnia before the rest of them, with Lucy had been there too, but, but Edmund had gone in by himself at one point and actually met this white witch. And she, appealing to his pride and his love of Turkish delights, had convinced him that he should be on her side, that he should betray his brothers and sisters so that he might rule over them. And so once the children get into Narnia, Edmund makes his way to the white witch's house with the hopes of betraying his brothers and sisters. Through various events, it comes to the point where he realizes that the white witch is really not a good gal. She's actually getting ready to kill him. And at the last moment, he's saved by a rescue party that's been sent by Aslan, the great lion. Still, he's not out of the woods we see that the white witch visits Aslan in his war camp. They have a conversation that you're not privy to at the time, but what happens in that conversation is that she reminds Aslan of what she calls the deep magic of Narnia. And the deep magic of Narnia requires that traitors belong to her, and that traitors ultimately die on the stone table. And what Aslan agrees to in that conversation is to die in Edmund's place. And so he goes to the stone table at night by himself, and the white witch and all her minions and, and all those forces of evil gather around, and they humiliate him. They shave his mane, they spit on his face, and they tie him down to the great stone table. And this is what the witch says to him as she prepares to kill him. And now who has won? Fool! Did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. Now, if you know how Narnia ends, you know that Aslan resurrects and roars in victory over death and crushes the white witch beneath his jaws. She never expected a resurrection. But, but had he stayed dead, the children would have died also. You see, the dying Christ secures our justification for us. But the risen Christ will see that we get it. Jesus dies for our sins in our place, and then he comes back from the dead to proclaim that we will not die. He defeats death for us. Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 25 makes this plain. It simply says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our 
justification. You see, the resurrection is the completion of the crucifixion. If you don't have a resurrection, that crucifixion, it doesn't matter. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then this whole Christian thing is worthless, and we are to be pitied. The truth matters. But as it is, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says, if Jesus didn't get up, none of this matters. But here's the truth. He did get up. And his resurrection, he says it guarantees our resurrection. That's what this talk about the first fruits is. I'm, I'm not a farmer. Not, not very blue collar at all, most of you know. But some of you may have farmed. And this idea of first fruits is that it's a portion of a larger harvest. But because I'm not a farmer, I thought of it in different terms. I thought of it in terms of musical artists sometimes will release a single, right? And then a few weeks later, they release the full album that they're going to put out. That's all this is, is that we're having a taste of the future now. Jesus is already raised from the dead. And his resurrection anticipates our resurrection. He's just the first of many. His resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all who put their faith in him. truth of Jesus' resurrection means everything. It means everything. If Jesus really did die on a cross and really did resurrect, well, that demands a decision from us. It demands a decision from us. If it's true, it demands our lives, our souls, our all. And if it's not true, it doesn't mean anything. Friends, this message, your belief in it, and this message is the, the hinge upon which the world turns. And it's the hinge upon which your life will turn. If you believe this message, everything must change. I tell you what, change is hard. And it's scary and it's not always easy. Sometimes it's dangerous. But it's good. Jesus will require much of us. He might ask you to do something dangerous, but he's good. One of the fun things I, I, you see about the lion Aslan in Narnia is that the kids are always just mesmerized by him and his beauty, but at the same time, they're terrified of him. I don't know we use the word terrible to describe God all that often because of his great power and strength, but he is that but he's also very, very good. So good, in fact, he has acted to save us to himself. The truth is that Jesus died for your sin in your place and that he rose from the dead. All you have to do to enjoy life together with God to receive that message and to believe in Christ.
And that's the exhortation. To believe the truth. Friends, I pray that we would all believe the gospel this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for dying for our sins in our place and for rising from the dead so that by faith in you we can have full confidence that we too shall rise, that we too shall be made like you in every way, that we too shall inherit the fullness of heaven's riches. And of those riches you are the crown jewel. Our love for you is simply the consequence of your great love for us. We ask that you would continue to pour out grace upon grace into our lives. We, we confess that mantra that we are complete idiots. It's never anything that God looks at us and thinks, wow, impressive. But that we have a bright future because of Christ. We confess that anyone can get it on this if they just simply turn from their sins and believe in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And we give ourselves, we submit ourselves to you once more this morning. It's a beautiful submission that leads us to singing. Amen.